Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He had 60 rounds left. The lead starts right now. A confession from the alleged gunman in the Highland Park parade shooting. This, as we learn, he contemplated carrying out a second attack at another 4th of July celebration. A key interview granted to the January 6th committee from the man who reportedly had this warning to White House aides about Trump going to the Capitol. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. What we know about Donald Trump's White House counsel, Pat Cipollone's upcoming testimony. Then, President Biden and Vice President Harris just called the wife of WNBA star Brittany Griner, who's being held in Russia. We'll speak with the family of another American detained in Russia for years, what they want to hear from the president. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper. We begin with the national lead and that deadly July 4th shooting in Highland Park, Illinois. Police now say the alleged gunman seriously contemplated a second attack two hours away in Madison, Wisconsin. That's where officials say the suspect ended up evading police for hours after escaping the crime scene in Highland Park. Escaping dressed as a woman to blend in with those fleeing for safety. That attack took seven lives. The seventh person just identified today, a 69-year-old Eduardo Uvaldo, also killed 64-year-old Catherine Goldstein. 35-year-old Arena McCarthy, and her husband, 37-year-old Kevin McCarthy, 63-year-old Jacqueline Sunheim, 88-year-old Stephen Strauss, and 78-year-old Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Highland Park this afternoon where police say the gunman confessed to his crimes and even considered another attack on that day. Appearing in court for the first time since the July 4th massacre, prosecutors say shooting suspect Robert Cremo III admitted to opening fire on parade goers celebrating Independence Day in Highland Park, Illinois. Authorities say three 30-round magazines and 83 spent shell casings were recovered and that Cremo was considering another shooting in Madison, a two-and-a-half-hour drive away. He did see a celebration that was occurring in Madison, uh, and he seriously contemplated using the firearm he had in his vehicle to commit another shooting um, in Madison. A judge ruled he will be held without bond. The state's attorney is charging the 21-year-old with seven counts of first-degree murder. The FBI is also considering federal charges. These are just the first of many charges that will be filed against Mr. Cremo. I want to emphasize that there will be more charges. We anticipate dozens of more charges centering around each of the victims. Cremo's past contact with law enforcement is now under scrutiny. Police say they were contacted in April of 2019 after Cremo tried to kill himself. The matter was treated as a mental health matter and no police action was taken. Five months later, a family member contacted police, reporting that Cremo had a collection of knives and said he was going to, quote, kill everyone. 
Police responded and removed 16 knives, a dagger, and a sword from his home. No one from his family, however, filed a complaint. Later that day, the knives were returned to Cremo's father, who claimed they were his. Despite all of this, Cremo was still granted a firearm card by Illinois State Police, with his father sponsoring the application for the card. The agency says Cremo passed four background checks between June of 2020 and September of 2021. I'm looking forward to an explanation of what happened. We in Highland Park, our, our police department, did the right thing, filed the necessary reports, and I am waiting for that explanation. I expect it in the next few days. As a community mourns, more witnesses are coming forward sharing their harrowing experience. The whole time I'm just trying to figure out what's going on, you know, what do I need to do? Bryant Civis attended the parade with his wife and four kids. He says his oldest son was briefly missing after the shooting stopped, but says he still managed to help victims while searching for his child. He eventually found his son in a nearby jewelry store. I came and got him and just asked, like, where you been, son? We're scared to death. You know, we didn't. We didn't know if he had been shot, that's why we couldn't find him. We didn't know if he was just hiding somewhere. We, we didn't know. And Erica, it's not exactly clear why uh, the shooter did not carry out the second attack in Madison, Wisconsin. Authorities are saying that they believe at this point that he had not put in enough research and preparation into carrying out that attack. And authorities here in Illinois are also saying that it, they're hesitant to uh, comment on a possible overall motive for this deadly attack in Highland Park because his motive is, quote, not necessarily clear. Erica? And Lavendera, appreciate it. Thank you. One of the most heartbreaking stories to emerge from this senseless shooting centers on a two-year-old boy. His parents, Irina and Kevin McCarthy, were both shot to death at the parade. Good Samaritans pulled the toddler out from underneath his father's body. CNN's Mike Valerio is also in Highland Park with more this hour. Uh, what more do we know about this little boy and his family? Well, we know, Erica, that his family has tried to explain to him, hey, your parents are not coming home, but how can you explain that to somebody who is only two years old, an orphan, from this latest mass shooting here in the U.S.? So to take you through what happened, as you illustrated, Erica, Kevin McCarthy's final act of heroism is to shield his son's body from the barrage of bullets. Little Aiden, two years old, is physically unharmed. His mother, Irina, passes away. And then he's roaming the streets, if you can only imagine, Erica, in the middle of the debris the detritus. There are two good Samaritans, a couple, who see Aiden wandering around and they say, hey, we got to save this baby. We have to take him to the police. They do that. The police, though, are so overwhelmed that this couple takes Aiden home, cares for him, launches a social media campaign and reunites him with his grandparents. Now, we also, Erica, want to move over uh, to Katie Goldstein, 64-year-old victim of this attack. She was described as the best mom, taking her older daughter, Casey, or Cassie, I should say, to the parade so Cassie could reunite, spend some time with high school friends. Cassie, though, is one of the first people to see the gunman open fire from the roof. She says, Mom, we got to get out of here. They're running together when Katie is shot. Cassie is able to say, I love you, Mom, before she closes her eyes for the very last time. It's just, it, it's heartbreaking when we hear all of these stories. We also now know who that seventh victim is, Eduardo Uvaldo. Uh, I understand he was just days away from his 70th birthday, Mike. 
Right, Erica, only two days away from celebrating 70 years, and his family had to make the agonizing decision of taking him off life support after doctors at a local Trauma One center said they couldn't do anything more to save him. The cruel irony, Erica, is that Eduardo hated crowds, he hated huge gatherings, but the exception to that rule was this parade here in Highland Park. He loved the 4th of July parade, was looking forward to it all year. He lived an incredible life, his family says, just recently celebrating his 50th wedding anniversary, Erica. Mike Valerio, appreciate it. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. I do want to get you to some breaking news now in our national lead. New information about the Uvalde school shooting in May. A police officer asked his supervisor for permission to fire on the Uvalde school shooter before he entered Robb Elementary School, but didn't get a response. That's according to a new report on the overall police response to that massacre, where 19 children and two teachers were killed. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Houston with the very latest for us. So, Rosa, this new detail about the officer, I mean, really stunning. What more is in that report? You know, it's really stunning, Erica, because there's actually two instances in this report that law enforcement could have used to stop the shooter before he entered the school and they failed to do so. The first one is this one that you're mentioning. Now, let me set the scene. This was early on, right after the gunman crashed right by that school. And then this officer, and I'm gonna read from this report, this says, quote, prior to the suspect's entry into the building at 1133, according to statements, a Uvalde police officer on scene at the crash site observed the suspect carrying a rifle outside the West Hall entry. The officer armed with the rifle asked his supervisor for permission to shoot the suspect. However, the supervisor either did not hear or responded too late. The officer turned to get confirmation from his supervisor, and when he turned back to address the suspect, he had entered the west hallway unabated. Again, this officer was asking for permission to fire this weapon, and according to this report, he had reason to shoot that weapon because this was a school, this was an armed gunman that was armed with a rifle. Now, the second opportunity by a police officer to stop this gunman was also, before the gunman even entered the school, according to the report, there was a school police officer who was driving in the parking lot of the school, and the gunman was outside the school, but this officer was driving his car too fast. And according to this report, the officer did not see the gunman. The gunman entered the school. Erica, one other thing to mention about this report, it specifically states that in those first three minutes that we've discussed about, where 11 police officers were armed with rifles inside the school, they could have shot at the gunman. And this report says they, they completely lost momentum because they failed to pursue, they failed to engage, they retreated. And we've got to mention that yet again, this is a different story for the families of the victims, Erica, who are yet again having to listen to a different set of facts. That's exactly what I was thinking, Rosa, as you're laying all that out. This sounds like, you know, yet another, yet another timeline almost. What, what more did we learn in this, in this report about uh, now the former police chief, Arredondo, and his role, his response? 
You know, this is very interesting because until now, Texas DPS has really been the one releasing information, releasing the timelines. And Texas DPS identified school police chief Pete Arredondo as the incident commander, pointing the finger at him, blaming the failed law enforcement on his failed response. Well, this report actually says that part of the problem was that there was no incident commander. There was no nobody in charge. Let me read from the report. It states, quote, additionally, we have noted in this report that it does not appear that effective incident command was established during this event. The lack of effective command likely impaired both the stop and killing and the stop dying parts of the response. And of course, Erica, we know that 21 people died, 19 children and two teachers. Erica. It is. Uh, it almost leaves you speechless. Rosa, really important update. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, also with us now, Terry Gaynor, who's served in a number of high-level roles with agencies, including the U.S. Capitol Police and the D.C. Police. You know, as, we, as we're taking all of this in, in this new report, I, I want to get to what happened outside the school. But the fact that we're hearing the finding was there was a lack of effective command. There was no incident commander. Again, this is now a new narrative after we have been told by Texas DPS that, in fact, it was Arredondo who was in charge, and they have squarely pointed at the finger at him as a failure. Where, what do we take away from this when there have been so many conflicting pieces of information? Well, Erica, it is the continued torture of the parents of these poor children and the spouses of the teachers. So it's disappointing. This is one more report. It's not a complete one. A report by the Alert Group, part of the Texas State University people who do a lot of training in conjunction with the FBI uh, issued this report. So it is very telling. And again, it lays uh, out different problems, different gaps, different failures in that whole operation. And leaves us with even more questions. Always appreciate your insight. Thank you for being with us on this one. Uh, a lot more news to get to on this Wednesday. Could this, in fact, be the interview that changes minds? Donald Trump's White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, now agreeing to a formal interview with the January 6th committee. Then, who needs support from the political party that got you elected if you've already survived several scandals? Well, British Prime Minister is about to find out. Topping our politics lead a potential breakthrough for the House January 6th Select Committee, former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone has reached a deal to sit for a transcribed interview with the committee. That's according to multiple sources. CNN congressional correspondent Ryan Nobles is live on Capitol Hill. So, Ryan, um, what are the details of this deal? And, and maybe remind us why the committee is so keen to talk to Cipollone in the first place. Yeah. So, Erica, it looks like Pat Cipollone is going to sit for a closed-door interview with the committee that will be transcribed and will be videotaped. So there's a good chance that we'll likely see some of what he has to say in future hearings. Uh, and part of this was a negotiation with the committee uh, because they really believe that Cipollone is someone who is a key to this investigation. He's someone whose name popped up over and over again in the previous hearings that we've already seen and been a part of, particularly in that hearing that featured Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. Take a sample uh, of just what Hutchinson had to say about Cipollone during her Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. 
So what that shows you is that A, Cipollone was very aware of everything that was going on in the White House, something the committee is very interested in, and he cautioned them against making certain choices that could have put the president in legal jeopardy. Uh, his testimony is going to be a crucial part of this investigation. Erica, the question is, how many questions will he answer? Because there's always the risk that he may decline because of executive privilege. Yeah, that is a great question. So that interview happens on Friday, as I understand it. And then we know that on Tuesday, the committee has now scheduled its next public hearing. What can we expect? So that uh, hearing is going to be focused on the domestic extremism and white nationalists uh, that were a part of the riots on Capitol Hill, and then what potential connections they have to the Trump White House. Of course, the committee has long said that what happened here on January 6th wasn't just a peaceful protest that got out of control, that there was actually a level of premeditation, and they believe groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the Three Percenters were at the core of it. So what they may be able to demonstrate on Tuesday is that the White House at least had an inkling of what was going on. If, that the, if that's the case, it could be some pretty explosive testimony. Of course, as we know, Erica, many of the individuals connected to these groups are already under indictment by the DOJ, some facing charges as serious as seditious conspiracy. Ryan Nobles with the latest for us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, more than 800 alleged rioters have now been charged in connection with the January 6th attack. Of those, more people from Florida have been charged than from any other state. CNN's Leila Santiago visited a solidly red part of the Sunshine State to see how Trump voters are responding to the hearings and how they feel about the former president. Parades. Family fun. Plenty of flags on display on Independence Day in Sarasota County. But this is Trump country, so the stars and stripes, not the only flag flying. I think we're at a Trump rally. <laughs> Joseph Bush is a Trump fan. The 58-year-old Republican who moved to Florida last year likes that the former president ran the country like a business. There is somebody that believes in our Second Amendment rights, the flag, the economy. Trump is as strong as ever, he says, in good standing to lead the Republican Party despite the revelations emerging from the January 6th hearings. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president Take me up to the Capitol now. I've watched a little bit of it to know that it's very one-sided and it's a distraction. Something we heard repeatedly. Are you watching the January 6th hearings at all? I have not, no. And why not? I just haven't got a chance. I think that there's a lot of validity to what's happening. I think there's also a little bit of a fishing expedition as well. It's not a hearing. It's... It's a show. While some Republicans and independents here told us they questioned the politics behind the hearings, others... I think we all need to know that information. People are not well-informed. Irina LaRose is watching the hearings. She once considered herself a Republican. Now... I don't think the Trump movement is the right movement for our country. I'd like to see a more moderate Republican. For LaRose, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is not an alternative either. Our governor is definitely not in the race for me. That's not the kind of candidate I'd like to see. Even as DeSantis and Trump appear to be on a collision course, both are powerhouse fundraisers. And while Trump remains popular with the GOP base, there are some signs DeSantis is making gains, pulling even with Trump in a recent New Hampshire poll of Republican primary voters. While loyalty to Trump here remains on full display. 
I think Trump is going to lead the way. I think he needs to redeem himself for sure. Republicans also told us they are open to a fresh face leading the party. I don't think Trump will be elected president again. And why do you say that? Because there's so much, many people against him. Even some of Trump's strongest supporters. I moved to Florida because of DeSantis. I think if DeSantis ran, he'd pick the right partner, he would win. Now, that man you heard from there, Joseph Bush at the very end, as much as he admires and has much affectionate for the former president, because believe me, that flag he put on the, the, the Trump flag he put on the boat is not the only one he has on that boat. As much as he admires the former president, he says that if he had to pick today, two years away from that presidential race, uh, he would actually go with Governor Ron DeSantis. Why? He says that's because the governor does not carry the same baggage that Donald Trump has. Interesting insight, Layla. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, a number of prominent Democrats are fed up, but not at Republicans. The frustration with the White House. That's next. In our money lead, soaring inflation and supply chain chaos are among the biggest problems facing the Biden administration. But there's growing frustration among many congressional Democrats with what they consider to be a lack of action from the White House ahead of November's critical midterm elections. And as seen as Caitlin Collins reports, the president is facing crises on multiple fronts. Hoping to boost his standing with frustrated blue collar voters. Today, President Biden making his sixth stop in Ohio since taking office. And when the middle class does well, everybody does well. The president highlighting efforts to shore up pensions with inflation at a 40-year high and more Americans disapproving of his handling of the economy. A lot of politicians like to talk about how they're going to do something about it. Well, I'm here today to say we've done something about it. The White House is facing challenging economic headwinds while also coming under scrutiny on other critical fronts. My body! After the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, a six-week abortion ban went into effect in Ohio as Democrats are becoming more frustrated with the White House's response. There's been reason to think that this country is moving backward. Several top Democrats telling CNN the White House isn't meeting the urgency of the moment, with one member of Congress describing the West Wing as, quote, rudderless, aimless, and hopeless. Biden's staff also defending his initially muted response after several people were gunned down at a July 4th parade outside Chicago. Y'all heard what happened. Y'all heard what happened today. Hours later, Biden returned to the stage to call for a moment of silence, but some argued he should have been as forceful as Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. If you're angry today, I'm here to tell you, be angry. I'm furious. I'm furious that yet more innocent lives were taken by gun violence. Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre pushing back, saying that Biden has been outspoken on both abortion rights and gun violence. The president has been also very loud and also very um, focused on those two issues. As rank-and-file Democrats call for more aggressive leadership, others are stepping into the national spotlight, with California Governor Gavin Newsom airing this ad in Florida. Freedom is under attack in your state. Your Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote. I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight or join us in California. 
And Jake, as some Democrats are questioning, or Erica, as some Democrats are questioning the White House's strategy, a lot of that often comes down, that criticism often comes down to the communications team. We should note that CNN has confirmed today that the communications director here at the White House, Kate Bedingfield, is going to be leaving her post in the coming weeks. She is a very loyal Biden aide, someone who has been with him on the campaign trail since he has been in the White House, certainly. But it remains to be seen yet who is going to be replacing her. Erica. We will be watching for that. We know you will bring it to us as soon as you hear Caitlin at the White House. Thank you. Uh, well, congressional Democrats also tell CNN there's a growing sense of frustration over what many describe as mismanagement across the Biden administration. Joining us to discuss, Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York. Good to have you here with us, first of all, in studio. You know, as we look at this reporting from Caitlin, from my colleague Isaac Dober as well, who spoke with two dozen folks, right, talking about this mismanagement, this frustration. Another member summed it up this way, quote, there's no fight People understand a lot of this is out of his hands, but what you want to see is the president out there swinging. Lack of action in the wake of Roe, despite having this draft opinion, which was basically the same as the decision, is being pointed to. But that is not the only area I know where there is frustration. Why do you think there isn't more action from the White House? So, first of all, it's not just President Biden. Members of Congress have to step up and fight as well. Congress makes laws. We need Republicans and Democrats to get their act together in Congress, get in the room and figure out how we're going to save this country. We have over 100 people dying every day from gun violence. We have mass shootings on a consistent basis. Inflation is out of control. The Supreme Court just took away a woman's right to choose. Congress can codify Roe v. Wade. There are bills in Congress right now. Our Babies Over Billionaires Act, the Ending Corporate Greed Act, windfall profits, uh, taxing windfall profits of large corporations. There's so much work to do. Congress needs to step up and fight as well. So you want Congress to step up, but is there also a place where the president needs oh, to absolutely. step up? So absolutely. what does he need to do specifically? What do you see as action that he could take that would make a difference. Well, he should open up abortion clinics on federal land. That's one thing he can absolutely do. Doesn't seem that's going to happen. Well, he needs to absolutely do that. I appreciate him stepping up and saying that we need to carve out a part of the filibuster so that we could codify Roe v. Wade. But we need to talk about getting rid of the filibuster. I would love to see the president use the bully pulpit more, be out and about among the American people, and create a vision for how we're going to get out of this mess. Do you think but he has not- a vision? I know he has a vision, but it's not only on him. It's on all of us to do the work. Congress is not functioning mainly because Republicans in the Senate don't want to work with Democrats. And we need to get on the same page and figure out how to do something. Do you Republicans don't want to work with Democrats? Do you think Democrats are at a point now where Democrats are working better together? Because we spent a large portion of the start of this administration, Mm -hmm. right, where Democrats were not working well together and they were airing all that dirty laundry in public. Are you at a point you think where the party is ready to come together? And can you get everybody in the same room? See, I disagree with that. I think we were working together very well. We had our disagreements. We're a big tent. We're diverse. We have different ideas. We have new members like myself coming into an institution that's been there for 246 years from education with new ideas. We have been working together. We need to do better. But the country wants to see us getting stuff done. How are we responding to inflation? There are bills in the House right now that Republicans won't even look at to bring down costs, to raise revenue, to put money in the American people's pockets. And that's just one area. And a lot more needs to be done, like a ban on assault rifles. Well, so let's let's talk about let's talk about guns for a second. Inflation is a big issue, but I do I do want to get you on guns. So we're hearing that, right? Mm-hmm. We're hearing from folks in Illinois specifically. I spoke with your colleague, Rex Schneider. 
designer of Highland Park, who I spoke with this morning, and he said specifically there needs to be an assault ban. We need to work on universal background checks. We know there's a lot of support in the country for that. The reality is that's probably not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So then what do you do with this time that you have left? What do you do that you can then point to in November and say, this is why you should vote for Democrats because we got this done? Well, I think the American people, when they see us fighting, they'll come out and vote in support of us. We can't just give up. We can't just say, well, the Senate's not working. Republicans aren't responding. We're not going to do everything. How much are we using the power of our voices? How much are we pushing H.R. 8 in the Senate to get passed? Mm -hmm. How much are we holding accountable the Republicans who aren't doing the work that needs to be done? How much is the president using the bully pulpit? It's about us getting out there amongst the American people. So do you think that message is getting through then to your colleagues that you want to hear and see more from them? Well, I hope so. It's getting through to my constituents and I'm hearing from my constituents that they are pissed off and they are ready to look at our democracy with fresh eyes in terms of the filibuster, the Electoral College, expanding the Supreme Court. So much work needs to be done. And the American people wants to see us do do this work. Um, Real quickly, before I let you go, this reporting that we have about the mismanagement, about the frustration. Do you agree with that overall? Again, I don't think it's on President Biden in and of himself. It's on us. What are we doing to be clear on our message, to be concise with our message, to engage with the American people and do more around police accountability. Look at the shooting, Jalen Walker, 60 shots to his body. We in need Akron. to do more there and so and in so many other areas. Jamal Bowen, good to have you in the studio today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Brittany Reiner's wife just got a call from President Biden. Up next, we're going to speak with the sister of Paul Whelan, who's also being held in Russia. What she is asking for in light of today's call. That's next. In our world lead, a call today with President Biden, Vice President Harris, and the wife of detained WNBA star Brittany Griner. The White House says they reassured Gerald Griner the president is working to secure Brittany's release from Russia. Biden also wrote back to Brittany Griner in response to the handwritten letter she had sent him from prison. All this is the family of Paul Whelan, another American detained in Russia, is asking why they're not getting the same level of attention from the Biden administration. Joining me now is Elizabeth Whalen, Paul Whalen's sister. Uh, it's good to talk to you again. Now, I know, and you've been very public, you want Brittany Griner back home, too. I also know, though, that you've been working for years to get your brother Paul released. When was the last time that you or someone in your family spoke with someone from the Biden administration? Well, our last high-level uh, meeting was May the 4th. So it's been a couple of months now. So it's been a couple of months. I understand, too, that during his detention, Paul has written letters to President Biden. Before that, letters to President Trump. I know that you don't think a meeting with the president is necessary for the work to be done to get your brother released. But in light of this phone call with the president and the vice president speaking with Brittany Griner's wife, uh, Trevor Reed's family as well, do you think that more involvement from the president could help? It's such a it's such a good question. To begin with, we don't begrudge the Griner family and their supporters um, any of the attention that they're getting from the president. I mean, it's really wonderful. They have resources far beyond what our family does. I think our concern is, you know, why the outreach to some families and not others? There are 55 plus families who would like to have that same degree of attention. My brother's written to both presidents and to people uh, throughout Uh, Congress, hundreds and hundreds of letters during the three and a half years that he's been held. Uh, I was astonished this morning to hear about this call. And it did make me wonder, are we, should we be pushing for a meeting with the president? Is that 
what it's going to take to bring my brother home. What I would really like to see is a functioning process that didn't require that. Um, so you said you've been wondering, does that mean you think you might push for that? For some sort of a call or a meeting well, with the president? <laughs> I have put in four letters over the course of the administration. I've emailed uh, the chief of staff myself. I've asked the national security ad advisor. Uh, a meeting hasn't happened yet. Um, at the same time, I think my message to the White House is whoever thought this was a good idea has to remember that other families with far less resources have been waiting for years and years to see some action to bring their loved ones home. People who have even less access than the Whelan family does. What we need to see is something a little more even-handed when it comes to outreach to the families. And of course, what we really need is action for all of these cases. I do believe the U.S. government is doing everything it can to bring Paul and Brittany home. But when it comes to the public outreach, uh, perhaps the Whelan family does need that meeting with the president. You mentioned the different resources that are available, that maybe Brittany Griner's family has more resources. You cited the number of families working to get their loved ones home. How much do you all communicate? I, I know that you've met Brittany Griner's family, but, but is there coordination between the families? I think there's a lot of fellow feeling, and there has been a co some coordination uh, in terms of a rally and a letter to the president between some of the families. We're just, there are so many families now that we're trying to, you know, do what we can. And when I talk about resources, I'm talking about, uh, you know, celebrity, uh, fame, people we know, connections, uh folks we've met in Congress, all of these things play a part when it comes to trying to get attention for our loved ones. We are coordinating, but each case is so very different. So although we have a lot of fellow feeling and support for each other, what happens with the cases in Russia uh, and even between Brittany's case and Paul's are going to be de very different from what's happening in Venezuela or Iran. When you look at the situation in Ukraine at the moment, and then we look at what's happening in Russia, it's getting less attention, let's be honest, in terms of the war. Do you see or are you concerned that there could be a correlation in terms of the attention uh, that your brother is getting? No, actually, that's the one place where we can take a little bit of heart. The um, The process for dealing with wrongful detainees and hostages is really separate from other diplomatic issues. And I have to thank the administration for really making sure that they've carved out a separate channel with a special presidential envoy for hostage affairs and uh, other types of outreach so that that doesn't really muddy the issue. It isn't so clear with some of the other countries, I don't believe. It's, some countries would like to have the hostages that they have, Americans on, that they have detained, they would like them to be more involved in, in the entire process. What we want, the families want to see, is we want to see coordinated and really efficient actions by the U.S. government to get our loved ones home and to keep these issues separate. We would like to actually see detainees brought home before some of these other policy problems are dealt with. Elizabeth Whalen, really appreciate taking the time to join us today. And it sounds like you might want to move forward, so please let us know if you do hear more from the administration, if there is a call, if there's any communication with the president. Thank you. I certainly will. Thank you very much. So if you fire members of your cabinet, then they can't quit, right? Let me tell you, you thought things were interesting yesterday? Oh, they're getting a lot more interesting today across the pond.
In our world lead, there's Teflon Don, and then there's a, quote, greased piglet. Or a, yeah, there are a lot of things coming out here. Uh, today's headline in the British tabloid, the Daily Mail, as you see there. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, fresh off surviving a no-confidence vote, clinging to power as his cabinet thins out. This over Downing Street's mishandling of sexual misconduct allegations involving a top leader in Johnson's conservative party. So far, 37 British government members, actually 42, I believe, we're up to because, listen, they just keep coming here, have quit, including the health secretary and the finance minister. CNN's Bianca Nobile reporting now where a new poll in the UK finds 72 percent of adults think it's time for Johnson to say cheerio for good. that I abhor uh, bullying and abuse of power anywhere uh, in Parliament, uh, in this party or in any other party. Boris Johnson's seemingly unsinkable premiership, once again on the rocks, but this time it is different. Treading the tightrope between loyalty and integrity has become impossible in recent months. Trust in Johnson's word almost completely eroded, say more than two dozen members of parliament resigning from government within 24 hours, including two of his most prominent cabinet ministers. Health Secretary Sajid Javid saying, I can no longer, in good conscience, continue serving in this government. Chancellor Rishi Sunak reasons the public rightly expect government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously. Johnson and his office now being held to account over the handling of allegations of sexual misconduct by a member of government after a former top civil servant broke ground to accuse them of lying about not knowing of a previous official complaint of alleged sexual misconduct before promoting the member of parliament involved. Johnson has since admitted he did know about the allegations. For a week, he's had them defending his decision to promote a sexual predator. Every day, the lines he's forced them to take have been untrue. And now he wants them to go out and say that he simply forgot. I greatly regret that he continued uh, in office. Just last month, the Prime Minister was booed in public before narrowly surviving a confidence vote by members of his own party following the latest scandal, Partygate. Now, a source close to one of his most loyal supporters, Home Secretary Priti Patel, tells CNN that she's told the Prime Minister the view of the party well, is that he has to go. As more letters voicing no confidence in the Prime Minister are going in, and members of Parliament suggest changes to the rules of the Conservative Backbench 1922 Committee so another vote can be held before summer parliamentary recess. The question for many now appears to be not a matter of if, but how soon his premiership will end. Erica, the Prime Minister's response to these events has been defiance, the latest example of which is him firing his long-term frenemy from the Cabinet, Michael Gove. He says that he has a mandate to continue, harking back to the election in 2019. But with 41 resignations from his government, polls in the country showing that the majority of voters and Conservatives want him to resign, that mandate seems nothing more than a mirage. It is really something to watch, uh, and we are following with great interest from here. Bianca, really appreciate the update. Thank you. A mail carrier for more than 30 years. Before that, though, he was a hero behind the Band of Brothers, remembering a legendary life next. The last known surviving member of the World War II Regiment Easy Company, immortalized as the Band of Brothers, has died. 
Bradford Clark Freeman parachuted in the D-Day Normandy invasion, fought in the Battle of the Bulge. The story of heroism and hardship of that critical U.S. Army company retold in the Emmy award-winning HBO series. This is Easy Company. And under my command, this will be the first and finest company in this regiment. After his service, Freeman returned to his hometown in Mississippi, working as a mail carrier for 32 years. Freeman was 97 years old. I'm Erica Hill, in for Jake Tapper today. Stay tuned. Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 